Matthew 25 and verse 14. For it is as when a man going into another country called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. And unto one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his several ability. And he went on his journey. Straightway he that received the five talents went and traded with them and made other five talents. In like manner, he also that received the two gained another two. But he that received the one went away and digged in the earth and hid his Lord's money. Now after a long time, the Lord of those servants cometh and maketh a reckoning with them. And he that received the five talents came and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, thou deliverest, deliverest unto me five talents. Lo, I have gained other five talents. For his Lord said unto him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will set thee over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. And he also that received uh, the two talents came and said, Lord, thou deliverest unto me two talents. Lo, I have gained other two talents. His Lord said unto him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will set thee over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. And he also that had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew thee that thou art a hard man, reaping where thou didst not sow, and gathering where thou didst not scatter. And I was afraid, and went away, and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, thou hast thine own. But his Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, Thou knewest that I reap where I sowed not, and gather where I did not scatter. Thou oughtest therefore to have put my money to the bankers, and at my coming I should have received back mine own uh, with interest. Take ye away therefore the talent from him, and give it unto him that hath the ten talents. For unto every one that hath shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But from him that hath not, even that which he hath shall be taken away. And cast ye out the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness, and there shall be the weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, now this evening, the matter we're looking at, we have entitled specific and general responsibility. A terrible title, I must say. Specific and general responsibility. Now, in this company, we, of course, this is one of our words. Responsibility. You hear it banded about all the time. Responsibility. So-and-so is responsible. Or you hear of so-and-so should be responsible. Or you hear of um, the responsible brothers. Or you hear of a responsible sister. Or, um, oh, many other things. You're always hearing the word responsible bandied backwards and forwards in this company. Now, what do we mean? 
by the word responsible or the word responsibility. To be responsible, here is the Oxford Dictionary definition, to be responsible is to be liable to be called to account. Liable to be called to account or answerable. Answerable. Now, in that definition, you have the key to responsibility. You've got the whole understanding of what we mean by the word responsibility. We don't mean that so-and-so should do a job. We mean that so-and-so is answerable to God. Answerable to God. Accountable to God. That's what we mean by responsibility. And responsibility, here again is the definition, the Oxford Dictionary, a charge for which one is responsible. A charge for which one is responsible. Is every believer, every Christian, therefore responsible? Does every child of God have a charge for which he is responsible? Or is it only the elder, uh, the preacher, uh, the leader, the deacon, the Sunday school teacher? Are they the only ones who've got uh, responsibility. Every single Christian is responsible. Every single Christian is answerable to God, is accountable. It doesn't matter who you are, what your background, what your nationality, race, color. Every single one of us is answerable to God. We are accountable. We have been given a charge uh, for which we are responsible. Now, if you turn to Matthew chapter 22 and verse 36, Matthew 22, verse uh, 36 to 40, we have the words, if you look at them, where the Lord Jesus said how the whole law is added up. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second like unto it is this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments the whole law hangeth and the prophets. In other words, the Lord Jesus was saying the whole of the old Testament is summed up in these two great laws. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and with all thy might, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Now, if you turn to John chapter 21, it's as if the Lord Jesus, speaking to the first apostle, the chief apostle, Peter, summed up this in a most wonderful way. In uh, chapter 21, you remember how he met Peter at the Sea of Galilee. And then he says to him in verse 15, When they'd broken their fast, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, lovest thou me more than these? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. 
He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, lovest thou me? He said unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He said unto him, Tend my sheep. He said unto him the third time, Simon, son of John, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus said unto him, feed my sheep. Now, isn't it interesting that it says as if the Lord Jesus brought those two commandments into one. If you love the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your might, you must love your neighbor. If we love the Lord Jesus Christ above everything else, the immediate outcome, the consequence of that love will be we will tend and feed the sheep and the lambs. We will care for the whole flock of God. The whole flock of God. They will be on our hearts. And it is the measure in which we love our Lord that will be the measure that we take responsibility for the whole flock. In other words, if I love the Lord and I am not answerable for the welfare of the flock, there's something artificial and unreal about my love relationship to my Lord. If my love towards the Lord is genuine and real, it will spontaneously result in my being accountable, answerable for the well-being and welfare of the whole flock. Now the Apostle Paul takes this up later in Galatians. In Galatians uh, 5 and um, from verse 13 to 15 he says, For ye brethren were called for freedom, only use not your freedom for an occasion to the flesh, but through love be servants one to another. There is responsibility. If you are a servant of the Lord, through love we become servants one to another. Love, what kind of love? Love for our Lord. And therefore we become servants one to another. Now he goes on. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. The murmurer, the backbiter, the gossip is always finally consumed by their own attitude. It always comes back like a boomerang in the end and knocks them out. Takes a time sometimes, but it always happens in the end. Well, now are we answerable? Are we accountable? Yes, we are, every single one of us. Take Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations. And so on. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end. So every one of us is answerable to God. We may not be actually the preacher of the gospel. We may not be the flaming evangelist. But we have received a commission. And there is a sense in which whatever we do in the work of God, it must be to the end of going out into the whole world and making disciples of all nations. Now we can sit here and pray for the saints in Indonesia. We can sit here and we can pray for the saints 
um, or the ones who are in great need in Brazil. And so we ought to pray for the work of God all over the earth. But if we pray only for the people in Brazil and don't go across the street to evangelize the person on the other side and take no responsibility in the life of the church, uh, in, the, in the gathering out of the people around us, this also is a nation out of which God is calling a people. This locality is a locality out of which God is calling a people to be his bride. Now, what can it possibly mean if people have a little uh, missionary box and put money in it for the end of the earth and pray for the other side of the earth and never, ever, at any time get involved in the practical responsibility of the church's testimony in their own locality and area? It's nonsense. It's nonsense. Sometimes it's conscience money. Because it's easier to talk about the other side of the world instead of facing up to our flesh and blood problems where we are. No single member of the body of Christ is without responsibility in some measure. Everyone is answerable to God for what has been entrusted to them. Have you been saved? Are you a child of God? Then you are answerable to God in some measure. It may be that all God has given you to do is some small, mundane, seemingly insignificant job. But if you do that job, your responsibility is discharged and wheels within wheels are all moving. But if you don't do that job, then very much in eternity depends on the way your attitude, the breakdown just there. We'll come to that in one moment. Now, there are many scriptures in connection with this matter. We've read the parable of the talents. Uh, I think you're quite clear that it's not referring to unsaved people. It's referring not only to believers, but to those who would serve the Lord. They had each one been given something. One was given five, one was given two, one was given only one. The, the, the fellow with the five, he went and traded it and he got back five more, ten. Five became ten. The fellow with two went away and traded it and put it out to business and he came back with two more, four. The fellow with the one felt that uh, that one was not much anyway, and you couldn't do a lot with one. I mean, if he'd had the five, of course, that would have made a vastly different thing. He could have done something with five, but one, what's one? And he thought, well, my Lord's a very hard man. He's very, very hard-headed in a business sense. He's got great shrewdness and business acumen. Now, I think the best idea is to bury this talent, lest um, it gets stolen, or in some way or other, it gets mislaid, and uh, so on. And he buried it. Now, the Lord didn't even, what he, the Lord was not, his master was not even angry with him that he didn't get two for the one. All his master was angry with him for was that he didn't even put it out to interest and perhaps get 5% interest on it. 10% interest, that's all. He didn't even do this, the least he could have done. Put it in a bank, in a deposit account, and let an interest develop on it. And come back and say, here I've got one and a quarter talents. Then his master would have said to him, well, not much, but you've done something. 
Now, I think that has very, very serious lesson for us all. You will notice that uh, um, when the master comes back, he brings all the three servants together for a reckoning, a reckoning. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul later refers to in Romans chapter 14 and verse 12, where he says this, So then each one of us shall give account of himself to God. Now this is not the great judgment, the white throne judgment, where God will judge. But each one of us has to, to give an account. We, ha we are answerable. We are answering for something. We are accounting for something. We are giving an account of what has been entrusted to us and what we have done with what has been entrusted to us. Now, if you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I link it up very much with this. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Most people have always taken this passage about wood, hay, stubble, um, gold, silver, precious stone, as being what's in their own life. But if you notice the context, you will see it's all to do with what you are putting in to the life of the church. Are you contributing wood, hay, and stubble, that's your own resources, or are you contributing in the life of the church of God, gold, silver, precious stone? And then he goes on and says, each man's work shall be tried. Not each man's salvation, but each man's work shall be tried so as by fire. Because for the day shall declare it, because it is revealed in fire. The fire itself shall prove each man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. Exactly. What he had will be taken away and given to someone else. But he himself will be saved, but so as by fire. So we, we do not lose our salvation, but the weeping and the gnashing of teeth, the, the sorrow over our whole attitude uh, towards the work of God, towards the purpose of God, uh, uh, that will bring sorrow. Uh, to us. Now, in this same letter, chapter 4, verse 1, Paul goes on with his argument, let a man so account of us as of ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Here, moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not mine own self, for I know nothing against myself, yet am I not hereby justified. But he that judgeth me is the Lord. Wherefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who will both bring to light the hidden things to darkness and make manifest the counsels of the heart, and then shall each man have his praise from God. Now, he's speaking about the same thing again. It's this matter of being answerable. Uh, we have it again, if you go back to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, verse 2. He called him and said unto him, What is this that I hear of thee? Render the account of thy stewardship, for thou canst be no longer steward. Now note very carefully verses 10 to 13. This is the Lord's interpretation of this parable. He that is faithful in a very little, now note it, in a very little, 
is faithful also in much. And he that is unrighteous in a very little is unrighteous also in much. If therefore ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? To your trust. To your trust. That is all the wealth and glory of the kingdom, the coming kingdom of God. And if ye have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now there again you've got exactly the same thing. The principle is he that is faithful in a very little will be faithful in much. Now let that little point burn into every one of us tonight, and our whole attitude to a thousand and one things will change. He that is faithful in a very little is faithful, will be faithful in much. Uh, again, of course, we have it in Titus 1.7, now dealing with uh, elders, the responsibility of elders. Titus 1, verse 7, for the bishop must be blameless as God's steward, as God's steward. He's not got any authority in himself, he's only a steward, a manager as it were, a steward, uh, uh, and so on. And then again, for all of us, in 1 Peter chapter 4, and verse 10 and 11. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 and 11. According as each hath received a gift, ministering it among yourselves as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speaketh, speaking as it were, oracles of God, if any man ministereth, ministering is of the strength which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, whose is the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Now, you notice, it's according as each hath received a gift, going back to the story again, the parable, ministering it among yourselves as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Well, now... Some may have very great responsibility, others very small responsibility. Grace is provided according to the measure of the gift. Now this catches every one of us out. Some people say, oh, but that's a terrible story the Lord told. It seems so unjust. It seems so unjust. That poor man, he was genuinely afraid. And he went and hid that thing. Nonsense. The whole teaching of the New Testament is simply this, that when God gives you something, he gives you the grace to fulfill the ministry. So if you are an apostle, you've got grace to fulfill your apostleship. If you are a prophet, you have grace to fulfill your ministry as a prophet. If you are a help, you will have grace to fulfill your ministry as a help. Whatever it is, you have the grace there. Now, all this business about temperament, personality, background is hogwash. Hogwash. And that's why the Lord says such severe things about people being cast into outer darkness. And it upsets some people. If it wasn't the word of God, of course, they wouldn't accept it at all. <laughs> 
being the word of God, they feel they've got to accept it, but they do so with a kind of uh, feeling of, well, we won't look at it. Because it really does appear to be a bit unjust. But it's not unjust. Of course God understands your temperament. He understands your background. He understands every single difficulty you've got. And he has made over to you grace according to the measure of the gift that he has given you so that you may fulfill that ministry. So now, instead of looking in unbelief at all the giants and saying, well, it's a wonderfully fruitful land, it's wonderful and all the rest of it, but there are highly fortified cities, great walls, men are like giants, we can't do it. Why don't you look at the grace and say, well, praise God, there's abundant grace, and I've got all these problems, but they're going to be overcome, not by me and myself, but by the Lord Jesus Christ. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, if we take that attitude, there will be a, a, a great difference in many things. Now, if you want to just look at that, see if I'm right on that. Ephesians uh, 4 and verse uh, 7, but unto each one of us, was the grace given according to the measure of the gift of Christ. To each one of us was grace given according to the measure of the gift of Christ. So the Apostle Paul had a lot against him. He had bad eyesight. He had many other things. If we, if we follow the, the traditional thing, he was bow-legged and bold and many other things that were not exactly beautiful about the Apostle Paul, so that people sneered at him uh, when he actually ministered, and said, oh, well, you know, his letters are very, very powerful, but he as a man is nothing. But he, whatever, however the enemy came to him, the point was this, that he had the grace, and he took the grace. And once when he even had a thorn in the flesh, he sought the Lord, and the Lord said to him, my grace is sufficient. And that's how the Apostle came through. Now that's the same for every one of us. The way, therefore, we appropriate the grace and discharge our responsibility, whatever it is, determines our eternal responsibility. Make no mistake about it. That little job you've got to do is the thing that heaven is watching. Not the job, but the way you do it. The way you're discharging it. And the way you discharge that silly little job is determining very much of what kind of eternal responsibility you have. Now, this isn't just and only, I must say this, a matter to do with the church. This is why we're told to obey employers, even when they're ghastly people. Because we're to look beyond and above them to the Lord. Now, where there's absolute dishonesty, obviously we get out. But where we've just got a difficult boss, we're told, well, don't just be a men-pleaser, an eye-pleaser. Uh, Go beyond and uh, seek the Lord. Serve the Lord. You are actually sent, and the Lord will reward you. And that's the amazing thing. It says the Lord will reward you. So, you see, this, it doesn't matter what kind of work you've got, what kind of job uh, you've got, the way our attitude to practical things, to the problems of life, to the circumstances of life, become the training ground. Now, the church is not just when we're gathered together. The church, we are the church at all times. And we are bound together at all times. We're in Christ at all times. We can't get out of him. We're always in him and he in us. Praise God. And therefore, there's a sense in which this whole matter becomes a church matter. In that sense. 
Um, that, may I also say that this that I have just said is the essential nature of overcoming. It is so often not the great matters uh, that undo us, but the small matters, the insignificant ones, in which, really, our true spirit and true character is seen. Ask a person to give a word on the platform, and they will put on a good show. But let them scrub a doorstep, and then you see the real spirit and character that is in them. If it's something that's exhibition, or something which is uh, before everybody, uh, there's some, we, we sort of screw up something and put on a front. But when it comes to some small little job, there really our true spirit and character is discovered. And that is the essential nature of overcoming. That's why heaven is not taken in by our big words or about our sort of looks, however holy they may appear to be in the meeting. Heaven is a actually uh, notice, notes exactly what the way we do things which are small and seemingly insignificant and, may I say, things which are perhaps larger. I'll come to that. Now, we have divided these two things into specific responsibility and general responsibility. So let's sp speak first of specific responsibility. Now, what do we mean by specific responsibility? We're speaking here of leadership, whether an elder, whether a deacon, whether a deaconess, or uh, responsibilities which involve supervising others in any way. Now, in Scripture, there's no such thing as an elderess. <laughs> but there is such a thing as a deaconess. And you'll find that in 1 Timothy 2. It says, the women also. So there are not only deacons, but deaconesses. And indeed, at one point, the apostle refers to a lady in the church at Rome, I believe she was at Rome, uh, he, as a servant of the Lord there, the deaconess there, is the word, or as he uses. Um, well, now then, specific responsibilities. We're not only dealing with elders, deacons, deaconesses, but any responsibility which involves the supervision of others. Specific responsibility. You have a job uh, given to you in the church which involves watching over other people, supervising other people, and so on. There are a number of characteristics which are of vital and fundamental importance in those who lead others in the house of God. The first is example. The first is example. Example is better than precept. Now, of course, to speak like this, why, uh, you know, not one of us comes up to scratch in this matter. But the first, I would say, and most important characteristic to be found in any who would lead in the house of God is example. Now, in 1 Peter 5, um, from verses 1 to 4, uh, we... The Apostle Peter speaks of elders. The elders, therefore, among you, I exhort him a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, a mortal partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Tend the flock of God which is among you, exercising the oversight, not of constraint, but willingly, according to the will of God, nor yet for filthy lucre, that's money, 
uh, but of a ready mind, neither as lording it over the charge allotted to you, but making yourselves ensamples to the flock, making yourselves ensamples to the flock. Now, if you also look at uh, 1 Timothy 3, from verse 1 to 5, uh, 15, we will not read it, Titus 1, from verses 5 to 9, you will find that the apostle doesn't give any regulations about those who should be elders and um, deacons. What he goes for is character. All, every single qualification is to do with character. Uh, even the question of polygamy. Uh, the matter that, uh, that if anyone's going to be an elder or deacon, he must, he must have only one wife, husband of one wife. And he must be able to rule his own family. It's all a question of character. If he hasn't got the character to rule his own family, how can he rule the house of God? If you look on a little further down, you'll find he, he must have a good testimony of those who are without. Even the world must speak well of the one who would be leader in the house of God. If your business, if your employer can't speak well of you, how can you serve in the church? Now, that's all example, and you will find that the key to all the qualifications put down are all going back to the question of example. In Acts chapter 20 and verses 17 to 35, the apostle gives that marvelous uh, closing final address to the elders of the church um, at uh, Ephesus, I think it was. And... Um, uh, in it, he uh, speaks again and again. If you read it through carefully in your leisure, you will find the whole thing is to do with example. And finally, in verse 35, he says, In all things I gave you an example, that so laboring ye ought to help the weak and to remember the words of our Lord Jesus that he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. Example, example. Uh, the apostle writes to Timothy and says in 1 Timothy 4 and verse uh, 12, he says to him, uh, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an ensample to them that believe in word, in manner of life, in love, in faith, in purity. Now, anyone who leads in the house of God whatever their responsibility involving the supervision of others must be an example in spiritual character. God preserve us if we have any leaders who haven't got spiritual character. They must be an example in spiritual character. They must be an example in spiritual pioneering. Now, one of the wonderful things about the Israeli army, going back to old, ancient Hebrew practice, was that the captains, colonels, and generals lead their men into the battle. That's why they lost so many. They lead them into battle. This is the great difference between all our European armies um, and so on, where the officers all remain more or less in the background and direct things uh, that are all out. That's why we get all this thing about cannon fodder. Men being used like cannon fodder, so you've got all the complaints about the First World War and even the Second World War. Now, we must understand that leadership is not that you sit back and have a cushy job while you direct everyone else to do things. 
Um, leadership, spiritual leadership, means spiritual pioneering. You are out, you are leading people. All the time you're leading people. That means you must lead them in everything. Do you speak of sacrifice? Do you expect sacrifice? You must be a pioneer in sacrificial service yourself. Do you speak of prayer? Do you speak of the need of prayer? You yourself must be a pioneer in the matter of prayer. Always present at times of prayer. A pioneer in the place of prayer. Do you speak of care and the need of care, of love and the need of love? You yourself must be a pioneer in care and love of the whole flock of God. Um, we must be pioneers in the matter of punctuality. What good is it of uh, saying, oh dear, the people of God are slovenly, they are familiar, if we ourselves are impunctual? How can we speak of others and the need of discipline in other lives when it is apparent that there's a, a weakness in discipline in our own? We must be pioneers in all these things. If the word of God says for Satan, not the assembling of yourselves together, we must be pioneers in this matter. It's no, none of this business of sitting in the background and sort of letting the rest get on with the job. I've got to the place where I'm an executive. And I can sort of sit in a plush armchair while the rest do the job. No, it's a question of being in the front line, uh, being a soldier. And this is what is so beautiful about the Apostle Paul. He says to Timothy, suffer hardship with me. Not I've done it all and I've got a great experience. Now you get out and get on with it. And I'll stay back and pray for you. But suffer hardship with me. It's pioneering. I think it's very, very important. We must also be examples in spiritual experience. What is the point of uh, or longing that others may have spiritual experience if we ourselves are not the pioneers in spiritual experience? We must go ahead in spiritual experience. In, we must be pioneers in the matter of bearing holy things upon our shoulders. It's no good bemoaning the fact that others are not taking responsibility if we ourselves are not pioneers in the matter of bearing holy things upon our shoulders. Like the Levites who had no inheritance but the Lord. No possession in Israel but the Lord. We must be such. Uh, we must be pioneers in the laying down of our lives for the Lord and for others. Not all the time saying to others this, this, and this, but ourselves, we are an example. Well, then a second thing I would say is that we must be filled with the Spirit. That's the second great characteristic of any who would be leaders in the house of God. Isn't it an interesting thing that wherever you turn in the book of Acts, you find that the one qualification required for anyone who served in any way was that he was filled with the Spirit. I've given all kinds of scriptures here. Acts 4, 8. Acts 7, 1 to 6. Acts 11, 24. Acts 13, verse 9. is again and again and again and again. When they chose men to count out the cash and distribute it, they didn't find out who were auditors, who were accountants, and who were good mathematic brains. The one thing the apostle said was, Seek ye out men of good report, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Would to God that everyone who had anything to do with cash in the work of God was full of the Holy Spirit. Half our problems would be solved. The problem is we get hold of someone with a string of letters behind his name who can count. It's more than I can do, I will say that. Who can count. And then we put him in charge 
of the collections in charge of the treasury. It do, isn't it revealing that if men who've got to count the money and distribute it amongst a certain number of widows, they could have well thought they ought to be on more important jobs, like evangelizing, or this, or that, or the other. But no, it's interesting. If they required, it's required of them that they be full of the Holy Spirit to count the cash and give the money properly and faithfully to the widows, how much more does it, is it required of every other gift? And is it not an interesting thing, just an aside, that those who were so faithful in the matter of uh, the money became evangelists and teachers? Stephen, he developed very rapidly into an outstanding teacher. Someone has said that if Stephen's life had not been cut short, he would have surpassed the Apostle Paul in his ministry. And what about Philip, that amazing evangelist? He was a man who spent his time, his beginning, counting the money. Filled with the Holy Spirit. A third thing is utter dependence upon the Lord. It's the cross, really. What do we mean by utter dependence on the Lord? When I was first saved, many of you have heard me say this a number of times, I'll say it again. When I was first saved, having never read the Bible, when I used to read in Genesis and Exodus, particularly Exodus, I could never understand Moses and Aaron. Every time there was any trouble, they fell flat on their faces. And I used to think, what a weird way of doing things. Because the Lord has given them the law. So why don't they just read the law, study it up, and go and say why do they fall flat on their faces every time there's a bit of spot of trouble? If only all leaders fell flat on their faces every time there was trouble in the presence of the Lord, not before the trouble, <laughs> but in the presence of the Lord, what a difference it would be. Give the Lord. You see, this is the headship of Christ in its practical outworking. When men don't fall flat on their faces before the Lord over matters, they go out and put their heads in the place of the Lord. Moses and Aaron couldn't do that. They could have so easily gone out and said, Look here, you lot, burning strange fire. Oh, God's going to come and judge you. But no, they went and fell flat before the Lord and said, What shall we do, Lord? They're doing this and doing that and doing the other. And then the Lord said to them, up. I will tell you exactly what you shall do. You shall bring them to the tent of meeting outside and I will meet with them. And the Lord settled the matter instantly. Still the people complained. They said, when, when the Lord dealt with the matter, they said, oh, they've caused the death of God's people. Well, of course, you'll always have that. Never mind. The fact of the matter is they were utterly dependent upon the Lord. What about the Apostle Paul in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 where he says we have the sentence of death within ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead. That's the principle. Utter dependence. Sentence of death within yourself. Can't even trust yourself. Not even your spiritual opinion. Not even your spiritual knowledge. Not even your spiritual experience. You have to be dependent upon the Lord. That is the quality, the character of true leadership. And therefore I always say, don't try to get men who, who've got lots of knowledge or much experience. Seek men who are dependent upon God and you will be safe. If there's one quality which we need in leadership above everything else, it is the ability to fall flat on one's face before God over any problem or difficulty. Then we know the Lord's got the chance of coming in and settling the whole matter and, and giving understanding and revelation. 
Uh, of course, it's the same with 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7 to 10. When the dear old apostle might have got rather too big for his boots, he was given a messenger of Satan and a thorn in the flesh to keep him low and humble. And people might say, oh dear, what a thing to do. But the Lord knew what he was doing with his apostle, his servant. He knew very well that he might, being caught up third heaven, he might have started sort of dealing things on his, with, uh, on his own. So he gave him a thorn in the flesh and made him utterly crippled, de dependent upon the Lord in everything. Well, there's the principle. Then a fourth thing, patience and humility. Need of patience and humility. Um, what do we mean by patience and humility? Philippians 2, 3 to 11, had this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Oh, you do need patience if you're going to be a leader in the house of God. You must understand always that when um, you're on the other side of the fence and supervising people, instead of being supervised, you suddenly begin to realize the need of patience. People come to you and they can't see. They can only see well, that one little uh, piece of their vision and they are convinced that this is right and so on and so on and so on. So on. It doesn't bother them two hoots that perhaps 20 people have come with the exact opposite view. And they feel that you should do this and you should do that and you should do the other. You need great patience. I very much love the way that it's put in to Timothy about meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. Oh, it's no good just laughing at people. You find, you find people come to you, you know very well they're just their own worst enemy. What can you do? All you can do is, is be humble. Patience and humility. Great qualities in leadership. Patience and humility. Patience is the crown of all virtues. And then two last things on this matter before we go to general responsibility. Loving and painstaking care over the responsibility entrusted. I think that it's very easy when you've been a leader or you are a leader to become careless. Uh, you, you, you sort of uh, uh, rest back on position, almost on title. And uh, I believe that just as the humblest little piece of responsibility is determining that person's eternal service, so if you are a leader the way you are dealing with your responsibility in discharging it is determining your eternal service. Now get this clear, because a person's an apostle here doesn't mean he's an apostle there. Because a person's a prophet here doesn't mean he's a prophet there. Because a person's a leader here doesn't mean he'll be a leader there. This is where people make all their mistakes. Some of you who've never led in your life may well be leaders there. Because God judges everyone on their attitude to, their, to the responsibility, to the charge given to them. And therefore, painstaking and loving care over, our, over the responsibility entrusted to us is vital in those who are leaders. Or, as the apostle said, having preached to others, I myself will be a reject, not for salvation, but a reject when it comes to the eternal kingdom and service of the Lord. Lastly, in this matter, um, oh, by the way, this matter of loving, and I put it in a rather bit of a mouthful, loving and painstaking uh, care over responsibility, faithfulness. In a, in, a, in a steward, it is important that a man be found faithful. Faithfulness. And remember the scripture, James 3, verse 1. Be not many teachers, brethren, for the teacher shall have the, the more severe judgment. So just remember that. 
If someone's a leader, they've got a much severe, more severe reckoning coming. Or they've got to give an account of that. They had more grace given to them, they had a heavier responsibility, they've got to answer for that. And then, take, lastly, take heed to yourself. Now, this is a thing often forgotten. Take heed to yourself. In Acts 20 and verse 28, the apostle said to these elders, Take heed unto yourselves and unto the flock, to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit hath made you bishops to feed the church of the Lord which he purchased with his own blood. Now, isn't that interesting? Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. Now, I believe this is a, um, a tragedy of many who are leaders in the work of God. They don't take heed to themselves. In other words, we have to watch ourselves. Now, the apostle said this exactly the same later to Timothy. Uh, uh, in, uh, where is it? 1 Timothy 4.16. He says, take heed to yourself and to thy teaching. Take heed to yourself and to your teaching. Always watch over your own relationship with the Lord. Remember the words again of the Apostle. Guard that, Timothy, which has been entrusted to you by the Holy Spirit. Twice he said it. In, once in each of his letters to Timothy, he said, Guard that. God preserve us if we're leaders and thinking that somehow we can just coast along. We can't. We, must, we have an enemy. Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. And then he says, Ye that are spiritual, restore such a one as spirit of me as considering yourselves, lest you also be tempted. Take heed to yourself. Well, now, all right. Now let's move on to general responsibility then, if we've uh, talked a little um, about specific responsibility, if you can still listen in this heat. General responsibility. Here we are speaking of the responsibility each member of the body has for the whole. Each member of the body has for the whole. 1 Corinthians 12. Verse 25 and 26. That there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. And whether one member suffereth, all the members suffer with it. Or one member is honoured, all the members rejoice with it. That the members should have the same care one for another. The same care one for another. The strength of a chain is the strength of its weakest link. Let me say it again. The strength of a chain is the strength of its weakest link. What good? All the other links being strong, if one is going to snap. When the strain comes. So the strength of a whole chain is the strength of its weakest link. Now therein lies your responsibility. If you think your responsibility is only a, a matter of doing things, you're wrong. Your supreme responsibility is to grow in the Lord and to walk with him and thus be a joint of supply in the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. Every believer is to function. Uh, he or she is responsible to God for functioning. You remember he, Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. 
through that which every joint supplieth, through the due working of each several part, the body builds itself up in love. Um, there are many other scriptures. You remember we've gone over them. I'm not going to go over them again. 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12. Uh, Colossians 2.19 but let's come immediately to the practical point what is my function right. you say I, I understand that I have to walk with the Lord and that I am to be as it were a spiritual uh, a joint of spiritual supply that is my own life with the Lord but what is my actual function in the church it is good to know our job in the family of God but it is even more important to build up the body of Christ even when we don't know our function. Now, we can build up the body of Christ even when we don't know our function because the, it says the body buildeth itself up in love. In love. And in many ways, this is the key, I'm quite sure, to all of us. Whilst God is showing us perhaps what our job is, be it small or large, uh, revealing to those with responsibility uh, also the whole church, I mean, at least we can look to God that we may um, have the love of God shed abroad in our hearts in such a way that we are building up uh, the uh, uh, body of our Lord Jesus. If we do not know our function, we can all be helps. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 28 helps. And in the midst of all these marvelous great gifts, apostles, prophets, teachers, miracles, healers, helps, governments, in the midst of it all comes this little helps. Help. Now every one of us can be a help. There's nothing marvellous about this being a help. You know, nothing complicated. It just means exactly what it says, a help. Someone who oils the machinery. Someone who keeps the wheels going. Someone who, as it were, uh, is a means uh, by which the whole body builds itself up. A help. Now, we've got it in 1 Corinthians 12, 28, but look at Romans 12 and from verse 9 onwards. You see, the Apostle begins in Romans 12 with, again, big ministries. He speaks about uh, having gifts in verse 6, differing according to the grace that was given to us, whether prophecy, verse 7, or ministry, or he that teacheth, or verse 8, he that exhorteth. Uh, and he giveth, and then suddenly he starts into a whole lot of things which we would hardly call gifts. Listen. For the continuation of this message by Lance, please listen to the second tape in this series of specific and general responsibilities.